0: We destroyed the planet. The ozone layer was long gone. And people were diseased, mutated, really. Something Dr. Fleischman was a mummy. And Holland, well, he was bald. Maggie, you were horribly disfigured. It was just awful. Oh, do you look at this? What do you think, Ed? Look, it's got a carving on the side, too. Is this Indian? Yeah. <sighs> be Indian. Well, maybe it's, what could it be? Maybe a, I bet it's a baby carrier.
1: Just listening to that soundbite out of context like that with Ed's voice being so serious and almost kind of like a drone, it, it kind of sounds like the introduction to a dystopian post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie like the description like the uh, cold open with the text that comes across the screen
2: (laughs) yeah uh you can tell that ed is obviously engrossed in his dream that he had just had but maggie uh if you cannot tell from that soundbite she had just discovered a I think it's called a bastinette. Isn't that the term for the uh, little basket the babies come in?
1: Yeah, I think I think you're right. It's uh she calls it a baby carrier. I, I would probably call it a baby carriage. Bastinet, I think, is also accurate. She's digging, you guess you can't see that in the sound bite, but uh she's digging out her uh I guess it was like her sprinkler system or something. It was some like pipes that she says, Don't worry, I'm just gonna use this for my, my garden. She's replacing it with with PVC.
2: Yeah, she's replacing it with PVC pipes, which, if heated and you drink from it, can cause a type of cancer. So that's why she was trying to tell Ed. He was like, I'm just using it for gardening. It'll be fine and everything like that.
1: That's why Ed was saying, yeah, that's carcinogenic. Also not biodegradable. Obviously, Ed is having some serious thoughts about the environment after a nightmare, I guess, that he had.
2: Yeah, uh, he had a terrible (laughs) dream. Hey, what are we talking about here?
1: Okay, Charles, we're talking about Northern Exposure. It's the 1990s TV series. My name is Lee. Charles, you're my co-host. And we're talking about the Northern Overexposure podcast, where we overanalyze every episode of the show. And uh, typically, we like to bring on, towards the end of the episode, a friend, acquaintance, someone who has never seen the show before. We like to get that outsider perspective, get the episode taken out of context, And in the context of now 2021, uh, (laughs) this episode actually came out, this was sort of the first episode of the new year at the time. This is back in 93, but our podcast now is in 2021. And uh, towards the end of the podcast, you'll hear from from the present and and (laughs) someone who has never seen this show before. But I guess, Charles, this is your first time watching every episode. Yeah, this is my
2: first time watching through it. And I gotta say that like we're almost 20-something years odd separated from when this episode premiered and when we're watching it now. And some of it has aged pretty okay and in other parts I'm like like, I always forget just how (laughs) old it is. How dated. Yeah, and how much you could just say back then, uh, right there. (laughs) Uh, We were talking about this before we went on the air right here, but I thought that this was an okay episode. It had some neat themes that I think we can delve into. Um, Some use of preservation and history, how we can go beyond those and try to look toward the future. Basically, we're trying to do an analysis of past and future in this episode. But I don't know if it's utilized too well.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll say kind of to piggyback on what you're talking about. I like to think that the show is very progressive or at least it was very progressive for its time. Again, this is like 30 years ago. uh, So, you know, we've made, hopefully fingers crossed, made leaps and bounds since then, though I guess, you know, a lot hasn't changed, but um, it feels like maybe at the time they were pointed in the right direction. In retrospect, maybe it wasn't enough or it was just scratching the surface there with some progressive ideas, but this, uh, this episode definitely brings into account the, the character of Mike Monroe and his sort of conservation um, environmentalism uh, attitudes, you know, that we've seen, you know, since he's been introduced in this season. By the way, the, the name of this episode is Survival of the Species. It was the f- 11th episode in the fourth season. And just a quick reading of credits. Again, this was the first episode in 93. To come out, it's January fourth, nineteen ninety three, was the air date. The episode was directed by Dean Parasot, who I want to briefly talk about, uh, but also was written by Denise Dobbs. I was looking at her IMDb credits. Uh, turns out Denise Dobbs was sort of like a producer's assistant. I think assistant to the executive producer is her title on IMDb, uh, and she doesn't really have. I think she has this as a writing credit and maybe one other thing. So you know, probably like. An assistant to Joshua Brand or John Fauci. but anyway, this was like her stab at writing an episode for Northern Exposure. I thought that was pretty, pretty cool.
2: Oh, I love that! I, I love it whenever our hear stories about the uh, PAs that decide to obviously they have higher ambitions in life, so they want to be screenwriters and stuff. So they'll tackle the show that are on, and you know, see what goes on from there. And I gotta say, yeah, uh, if this is her first script, like the one to be published. It's not a bad one. It's not the worst. It's yeah. not fantastic. But, you know, for a first time, for them to give you the go,
1: it's great. Yeah, I agree. It's pretty cool to think, like, Denise is probably surrounded by scripts every day of work. You know, she's probably got to juggle all this paperwork. But, you know, and it's, and it's like she's engrossed in the world of Northern Exposure, you know, every day at work. So, uh, you know, she, she's probably, at this point, comfortable enough to uh, live in this world and sort of write in this world but also about uh, the director of this episode, Dean Parasot. This is not the first episode that he directed for the series. He's uh, He directed the season premiere here in, in the fourth season, but he also directed the episode Things Become Extinct uh, from the third season, which was a pretty good one, I think. And he'll go on... Oh, no, actually, I think that this was the last episode that he directed for the show. So he's not returning, but he's had a few episodes that are pretty good, I think. And um, apart from that, he is a a, sort of an acclaimed director outside of Northern Exposure. It seems that he's worked a lot in the TV series Monk, or at least he's directed the pilot of that show. Uh, He's worked some on Curb Your Enthusiasm. But of course, he's also directed a lot of feature films, some notable ones, Galaxy Quest, uh, and most recently, the the third Bill and Ted movie.
2: Oh, nice. I thought
1: that was pretty cool. And he's also, he was uh, married to Sally Menke uh, before she died. Uh, she was a famous film editor that edited a lot of Quentin Tarantino films, uh, among other projects. But uh, yeah, I was just, you know, just going down that Wikipedia rabbit hole of Dean Parasot and found that I guess what maybe brought him to more fame uh, in 1988, so before this, he was awarded the Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film. Uh, it was a short film called The Appointments of Dennis Jennings, which was written by uh, Stephen Wright, the comedian. and also stars him. It stars Rowan Atkinson, you know, like Mr. Bean. Um, you can watch this uh, on YouTube in full right now, but uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. It's not really... <laughs> it's very stylized, it's very almost um experimental in some ways for the time, but uh mostly it's kind of just like a comedy routine uh rather than a story, but if you mm. like Stephen Wright, if you like comedy, you might find it funny.
2: Oh, okay. So he won the Oscar for that?
1: Yeah, uh for best live action short film. And uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so that was, you know, early on some success in his career and He's gone on to, he's continued to work even to today, you know, as we see with uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music.
2: Yeah, this is his swan song then.
1: For Northern Exposure, yeah, that's right. He doesn't seem to return as director at least. Well, anyway, enough of that tangent. Let's talk about this episode. The way it starts is very interesting. It's got, uh, again, like that, it's that, I I think this is very, uh, maybe characteristic of Dean Parasat's work, not only in the series, but uh, I was just thinking comparing it to that short film is very stylized. I want to say actually that that short film was also the director of photography uh, of his short film was Frank Princey, who did all the you know cinematography for this series. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, the style of this episode that it starts out with like all this fog and we're in this exterior. It's just very kind of dark and gloomy and Ed just pops into the frame. And walks into the brick and we're kind of following him through this odd, dystopian, futuristic, uh, you know, interpretation of Sicily, Alaska inside the brick. The music is really, really interesting. It's like synthesized percussion and sort of this odd, like mysterious grooviness. I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's really hard. But I, I couldn't find a song for this. It must be just a David Schwartz original composition.
2: Yeah, it's got a wide-angle lens to start off with. So, everyone's a little bit more distorted. So, already we're seeing some neat tricks up the director's sleeves. It makes them look uncomfortable as well. Like, maybe it's my imagination, but you can almost see, like, sweat on Ed's face right there. Oh, yeah. Uh, which makes us feel uncomfortable right there. The colors, like you said, were really futuristic. They were neon green, some purple and pink dyes throughout there. Uh, I got to say that this reminded me of a joke that I had written once, where I had said that... Recently, I got rejected, and a friend was comforting me about it, and he told me, there's plenty of other fish in the sea. But then that got me thinking, what's going to happen in the future when someone needs to comfort a friend who got rejected, and there's no more fish in the sea due to overfishing? Like, are you just going to say, don't worry, Tom, there's plenty of other radioactive flesh creatures in the fallout zone. I mean, look at Emily. She's practically glowing.
1: (laughs) Radiation joke or dystopian future? yeah, this is yeah. what this is what Ed is fearing is going to happen. I guess, uh, yeah, we don't really get any reason why he's visit you know, visited by this vision. He just has this dream to start off. Uh, I like how you described it the wide angle, almost fisheye, distorted lens. Uh, and a lot of the characters are looking straight down the barrel of the lens, like looking straight into the camera. There's an interesting shot. i I actually kind of like this sometimes in movies when, the camera starts sort of like as over the shoulder, like it's over Ed's shoulder. Um, so we sort of see his from his perspective, looking from behind him. And then the camera moves past Ed and uh, the focus like just looks directly at us in the camera. So the camera goes from being basically over Ed's shoulder to being Ed's point of view. Like, you know, now the characters are looking straight at the camera. Like this is when, oh. um, when we first see Hauling. And Holling's got that bald cap on?
2: Yeah, yeah. He's got a bald (laughs) cap on. He said he lost it due to, uh, uh, I I think it was like the ozone layer melted off or something.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I've forgotten. But I know that Shelly has like an acid raincoat. It's this uh, see-through sort of plastic raincoat. Uh, Dr. Fleischman. Well, Ed says Dr. Fleischman was a mummy. He kind of reminds me of the Invisible Man because he's got like shades on. But the bandages, he's got bandages all, all over his body all over his face, but he's got sunglasses over the bandages. Oh wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait. Uh, yeah. Go on. We also have to mention Chris, Chris Stevens. Uh he's like this oxygen junkie now. He's got like an oxygen pack on his back and he's trying to hand Ed like this nozzle. He's like, the first hit's free. It's pure O2 oxygen, baby. And he that gives will
2: this kill you. <laughs> wait, really? Well, you can't You can't have pure oxygen, like 100% oxygen.
1: Really? I thought, what about oxygen bars? What's that?
2: That's only if like you're in a, I I thought my understanding of it was like, that's like a medical condition. But if like you injected, like you just breathed (laughs) in straight oxygen and it wasn't good for you. Let let me see this. Hang on. Let me make sure I'm saying something right. I was always under the impression of that because the air we breathe in isn't pure oxygen.
1: Oh yeah, that's correct.
2: Yeah, yeah. So according to this very quick Google search, it says pure oxygen can be deadly. Our blood has evolved to capture the oxygen we breathe in and bind it to safely to the transport molecule called hemoglobin. If you breathe air with a much higher than normal O2 concentration, the oxygen in the lungs overwhelms the blood's ability to carry it away.
1: Wow. So yeah, it can be very deadly. I wonder what oxygen bars are. They must just be like a little more purified, but that if <laughs> just from reading this, that sounds like a bad idea, but I don't know. Um, anyway, I just wanted to say Chris gives a really kooky performance in like the brief two seconds that he's on screen. If you notice, like right before they cut away from his close-up, he has this very crazed expression on his face. He's <laughs> he's really hamming it up for that.
2: So that brings us to the next scene where it's Maggie uh, in the opening soundbite that we used where she's trying to install these PVC pipes and she finds this baby carrier uh, while Ed is talking about the in his mind the perceived fall of humanity, right <laughs> there, uh, I think it's really neat that she finds a baby carrier and not any other relic because it could have been anything else. Yeah. So like the baby carrier kind of implies that like it's a a cycle of life and death. Yeah. And you're going back in time to see how a baby would be, and then you could bring it to the future that adults are finding it.
1: Yeah, that's that's very nice. Yeah, it's like that that circle of life. Ed is sort of talking about the end of life. Maggie is discovering the beginning of life, albeit it's like life in the distant past. But yeah, you got that classic sort of like these two characters having a dialogue, but not really getting through to each other. Ed is kind of monologuing to himself about the end of humanity. Maggie's not really paying attention. When she finds the baby carrier, she asks Ed's opinion of it. Clearly, she hasn't been listening to him. Ed just walks away. And it's an effective sort of wide shot that we see. You know, we've got Maggie digging in the trenches of her yard. Ed walks away. And it's kind of a very lonely feeling, you know, because Ed can't relate to anybody about this. And also Maggie's just like, you know, stuck in the dirt uh, with her baby carriage.
2: (laughs) She is literally and figuratively stuck in the trenches of her own thoughts.
1: Yeah. Well, should we stick with Maggie or go with Ed? Or should we go with this third plot line that we've yet to introduce?
2: Uh, let's go with the third plot line. All if right. only because I think that we can weave in that okay. one toward the end.
1: Cool. Well, so we've got a new guest star on this episode. I believe the actor's name is Eden Gross. He's like a child actor. Um, it's this kid that kind of stumbles into the brick. Uh, too cool for school. Like, literally, he skipped out of summer camp to, I guess, escape to Sicily, Alaska. Uh, and does he first order a drink or does he first, like, you know, he's, like, trying to order a drink. He's trying to bum a, us, uh, a, like, get a, a light for a cigarette from from Dr. Fleischman. Uh, wh- what's going on here?
2: Yeah, he tries to order a rum and coke first right there, <laughs> which is, like... Uh... I guess if you, if you were a child trying to sound cool, that would be like the thing you would order because it's it got also, Coke. Yeah. You it, like Coke. You're a child.
1: Yeah, like, <laughs> that. And it would be pretty palatable for a kid. You know, you're just drinking Coke with some alcohol in it. You're right.
2: Yeah. And then uh, finally, we have like some sense of uh, law and order because that's where Holling's like, you have any idea on you, kid? And he's like, oh, come on. Don't do me like that, man. And he's like, yeah, no, no, no. This isn't going to work. <laughs> like, you're not getting any alcohol.
1: <laughs> yeah. Holling says something like, you know, I'll I'll serve you some food, but you can't sit at the bar. You know, you're not of drinking age, so you can't sit up here. Um, but I mean, plenty of characters have sat at the bar that aren't of drinking age. Like Ed Chigliak is, uh, well, I wonder how old he is now, but is that 21. Like, can he, does he drink beer? I don't know if we've ever really seen him drink beer.
2: I think it's established that he can, right? I, th- I thought he was ordered in 21 at this point.
1: He might be right. Because I know he has like ordered a drink in the past, like in the episode when he was like the Fellini-esque character. He orders a drink, but then Shelly says, Ed, you don't drink. She doesn't imply that you can't drink. Uh, Well, regardless, I feel like even if Ed wasn't of age, they, you know, this is Sicily, Alaska. There's no law. They might serve him a a drink. I think Holling is just saying this to get the kid, uh, you know, to to exert some dominance over this kid. Like he doesn't want this kid walking all over him. He's like, listen, uh, you're not old enough to get a rum and coke.
2: Right. And I think the kid's only like 12. Like, it's at least, like, past 18. So, like, you know, the distance between 18 and 21, like, some countries actually let you drink. It's not like, I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So, yeah. So, basically, we have this kid character right here. Uh, I believe his name is Brad Young. And he's trying to strike it out on his own. Like you said, he was ditching out on this summer camp right here. He's a little bit of a punk to Joel because I think he asked for a lighter to smoke. Kind of just blows Joel off when he doesn't get that light. And he also, for an episode that we haven't talked about yet on this theme, for an episode that wants to go heavily toward the direction of feminism, uh, this character is entirely sexist. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah. Very strange.
1: Yeah, there's some pretty, um, uh, I guess you could say offensive language, (laughs) this kid, like he's saying things like complimenting. I think he compliments uh, Shelly to her face. He says like, he says like, Nice hooters. And she says, thanks. You know, it's, she doesn't take any offense to it. Uh, but there's other, there's some weird stuff. Like he says he had to change his, uh, his pants. What is, Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah,
2: yeah. He like wrecked three of his underwear That's pants. That's
1: what he says. He, <laughs> he says, I like wrecked my three pairs of pants uh, dreaming of you or something. Yeah, there's some weird, there is some pretty strange uh, language here with this, with this Brad Young character.
2: Yeah, uh, we can talk more about that later because I think that it actually does have a purpose. But for right now, we see that Brad is trying to order food and he doesn't have any money on him. So that's where Holling conscripts him into part-time work, basically, in order to pay for his food. And mostly he agrees just so he can stay closer to Shelly.
1: Yeah, he's sort of agreed to, you know, I think Holling says pay as you go, basically wash the dishes and we'll give you some free food. And as the episode develops, like, Brad, this little boy is very eager to, uh, you know, basically, he's at Shelley's like beck and call. He'll he'll clean the grease traps, uh, with no complaints, uh, just to do whatever Shelley wants him to do. There is a, a saying or there is a quote that I like that Brad gives to Holling early on when he's talking about the summer camp that he ditched out on. He says, uh, "Well, he's mm-hmm. complaining about how boring this camp was." He says. I think the idea is that if you do something that sucks long enough, anything will look good. It's like the idea that uh, it, just being in this boring outdoors setting uh, will remake you and make you a better person. Of course, Holling says, "Well, that sounds like a great <laughs> sounds like a great time." Like Hauling is, you know, formerly a very outdoorsman type person, <laughs> but this Brad character maybe is more like the city character. Maybe more relates to more of like the Joel Fleischman you know, New York, st- I don't know, lifestyle. Though Brad comes from Los Angeles, I believe.
2: Yeah, he's already in the biggest city. I, I think it's mostly just that he wants to do what he wants to do, which is often <laughs> crime, <laughs> as we see later in the scenes where yeah. he's talking with Chris. Yeah. Uh, and,
1: do, do you want to talk about that scene next? Let me pull up my notes for that. That was like, there's a lot of, I don't know. There's a lot, there's some, not a lot, but there are some things in this episode where that, I don't know. I could see like certain things making it getting cut, you know, like a deleted scene and it wouldn't really change too much of the mm-hmm. episode. Well what did you have to say for that episode? I'm gonna try to or sorry, that that scene.
2: Yeah. So it's a really short scene where where we next see Brad trying to rob the donation, yeah, the I don't know donation what box at Church. Yeah, the yeah. donation box right there. And it's got a lock on it, and Chris kind of gives him the advice to be like, all right, this isn't a good way to rob it. You either bring it home with you so you have more time to rob it and no one can stop you, or you just completely detach it with like a screwdriver or something like that. And Chris surmises that he is going a little nutty because of a girl, and he kind of gives him some life advice, tells him that you can either go for love or you can go for delinquency, which I find to be really strange <laughs> if, you, the if you're limiting to just two options. He's like, you could either do, you you could be a criminal or you can fall in love. Maybe what he's
1: trying to say is like, um, choose like your love or uh, yourself in a way, like, you know, your career. Love or career maybe is more uh, what he's trying to explain. Cause he says, like, Chris says, love slows you down. You know, like you used to be the top dog, like the best safe cracker, or just like you used to be really good at your craft, but um, you settled for love and like your life went in a different direction, like maybe perhaps away from your career. As an interpretation for me, I don't know if that's exactly what he's trying to say.
2: Well, he tells the kid about the pluses and minuses of it. So if it was just like a regular career, the, these pluses and minuses wouldn't, <laughs> they wouldn't be the same because he says one of the minuses of being a criminal is that you don't have a medical plan, which <laughs> that, that's not a thing if you have an actual job, like that usually has healthcare <laughs> benefits. So yeah, I just thought it was kind of an odd scene, but I understand the purpose of it, which is that, Chris is trying to help a young male member, just like Hauling previously was trying to help a young male. Ah. So essentially you have people that have gone through the passage of time and they have more experience in wisdom and they're trying to pass it down to someone of the same gender. But unfortunately, I think maybe the things that are passing down aren't like necessarily the right lessons. So you're continuing this system of uh, – You're passing down traditions that maybe aren't as great in 2021 as they would be in 1993.
1: For example, how do you mean?
2: Well, it seems like they give this kid a lot of passes for
1: (laughs) uh, basically
2: uh, sexually harassing (laughs) Shelly.
1: God bless these people for like, I think in the beginning, you know, Brad is depicted as and received as, you know, received by the town as sort of a twerp and like this obnoxious little kid, but somehow very shortly after he enters the episode, some flip is switched and everyone like wants to help him. And like, I don't know. God bless these characters for wanting to help Brad. I would quickly, I would be done with him pretty quickly.
2: <laughs> I think that's what scares me about teenagers. It's like stuff like that.
1: What do you, what do you mean?
2: It, uh, it, there's no way to convince them otherwise. Like, He's set in his ways. He's like a little (laughs) piece of crab.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, I mean, like what? (sighs) Sorry, sorry. Maybe I'm like giving him too hard of a time. But what is the redeeming quality of Brad? He's just like innocent. Like what? (laughs) What good thing does he do? I guess that he wants to like show love to Shelly. Is does that redeem him? What what (laughs) what's going on here?
2: He's uh, he's he uses a pretty much like a mouthpiece for the other gender i feel yeah because i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about this more once we go into maggie's plotline. yeah but i i think there's a purpose for why he is doing that that does not mean i like the character but i see his value
1: got it yeah okay so he has a reason he's got some sort of uh importance to be in this story he has a function uh which we'll maybe elaborate on once we start talking about maggie's plotline. um did we skip over anything with uh Brad, so there's definitely the scenes like we said where he's like cleaning the grease traps. He you know is kind of fawning over Shelly. Um, perhaps we haven't. So what ends up happening after this uh, donation box scene is, uh, Brad goes back to Shelly and tells her that he's decided to return to camp. Uh, he he has this tattoo on his hand uh or on his arm. Uh, it's not a permanent tattoo. He did it with ballpoint pens um and this is where we hear the idea or the quote that he wrecked his underwear i think what confused me about the scene is i want to say brad says you know the first thing he leads with is i'm going back to camp but then the with it also within the scene he says uh that he wants to be with shelly
2: yeah i think he wants to bring shelly with him like to elope from town yeah, uh, I, I think it's his general plan.
1: But that uh, that doesn't square off with uh, him going back to camp. Like he can't bring Shelly there. I was a little confused by the dialogue here.
2: Well, he's not. He's not thinking rationally. Like, <laughs> like obviously, he does think he can. Like yeah. he does think he could just take <laughs> Shelly to the camp.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, Shelly has to turn him down and explain that she's with Holling. Uh, she says Hauling has the keys to my pants and my heart. So yeah, well, uh, some more sexualization of Shelley and Holling, uh, which of course we always
2: kind of just to said
1: gloss over on this podcast. Um, you
2: could have just said like keys to my. Heart. No one ever says that Keys to would imply that that would imply, yeah, that, 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 would imply that you could be in a situation. <laughs> what they're saying that you could be in a situation where someone has the keys to your heart, but not your pants, or vice <laughs> versa. It's like keys to the pa- to the pants, but not the heart.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, sufficient, but not necessary, or whatever. <laughs> I always get that mixed up. um anyway, so the next scene with Brad is that where they send him off and Chris gives him like the Kipling book, Kipling being the author of the Jungle Book. Yeah, what's going on? Hell, fill fill this out with me. What happens here?
2: Yeah, so this is his going away party where he gets an <laughs> audience of Holly and Chris, and Shelley sending him off before he gets on that uh it's not a greyhound. it's a gray line. line, yeah, gray line. I remember that, yeah. And Chris gives him the book, like he said, in order to guide him. Some poetry, which is, I, I feel like it's so underhanded because I don't think this kid necessarily has a love of poetry. I think he wants to abuse poetry so that he <laughs> may go be with more women. And I, it kind of seems like that's what Chris is trying to tell him to do. Oh it's wow, like, yeah, yeah. So that's why I'm <laughs> like, like what is going my on
1: here? This will get you chicks. Uh,
2: yeah. Uh, Shelly gives him a parting kiss, uh, and a scarf. And oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad it was a scarf. I thought it was something much dirtier that she gave him.
1: What did you think it was? Oh, like what her clothing that? or something?
2: Yeah, I thought like stockings it like or something. I thought it was a movie where like a woman, like a much older woman, gives like a male character like her underwear or something.
1: Isn't it? It's I like think, a famous movie. I thought, I think that's like a that's happened in movies before. <laughs> it's like, here's a memento to remember me by. Sure. No, thankfully it's a scarf. Uh, it was supposed to be for Hauling, but Brad's going to need it more and Hauling didn't mind. Brad says like before he, like he starts to get on the, the bus, the gray line, but then he turns around. And he's like, I'm coming back in five years, Shelley. Like I want to marry you or something like that. I don't know if he says that, but I guess that's the idea. So I guess the conclusion of this is instead of giving the delinquent Brad a slap on his wrist, uh, the characters here, take him under their wing and try to improve him and uh, give him some hope, uh, some direction. And uh, that about does it for Brad. Maybe we'll be able to um, t- to connect him to some other themes in this episode as we explore those in the other storylines. But Charles, let's choose. Are we going to talk about Ed or Maggie's storyline now?
2: Uh, I want to talk about Maggie because... I feel like Ed's goes beyond those two things. So like Maggie and uh, Brad's things were talking about gender, whereas Ed goes like transcends gender. (laughs) So it would be like, it would be interesting to talk about his last, but the way the episode ends is that it ends with Maggie's.
1: Well, that's okay. We can still, I think it's the right uh, instinct to go with Maggie because we're sort of like in this parallel vein with Brad. So, yeah, let's let's jump into Maggie a little bit. It's okay if okay. she terminates the episode.
2: Yeah, let's go with Maggie then. Let's talk about her and digging up ancient relics.
1: Yes. So we started with the bite, of course. She finds this uh, bassinet, you know, the baby carrier. And Maurice ends up in Maggie's yard. I can't remember if she summoned him or if he's just coming around. Maurice, uh, you know, is sort of a rich person, sort of a collector. It turns out he is a bit of a collector in uh, native artifacts. What I thought was interesting in this scene was uh, Maurice is examining the baby carriage, the baby carrier, I guess. And he says, you know, it's in too good condition. You know, what is something like this doing here? If it's like, it seems like it was made by, you know, some like ancient natives, but the condition of like the leather or the wood, or there's even like paint on it or something. It's like, it's too fresh or something. turns out that it was like something to do with like the peat. Uh, that's in the the soil is a natural preservative. But for a second there, I thought it was like some supernatural coincidence or something. (laughs) Like this is interesting.
2: Yeah, it turns out that it was the peat that did it. And I actually went and looked into this. So it turns out that peat's really great for preserving because of the sphagnum that grows on top of it. So you can have these decayed plant matter and the sphagnum moss will actually grow on top of it. So water or dirt caught beneath sheets of it will actually stop getting a normal supply of oxygen from the atmosphere. And when that happens, it just makes the bacteria and fungi inhospitable. So it decomposes at a much, much slower rate. So instead of breaking down right away, it just lingers. So that's why you can preserve human bodies for like literally thousands of years in bogs. And it's fine. Yeah, it's really crazy how much peat can actually preserve things.
1: Yeah. I don't know if this is the same thing, but oxidization is the idea that like when – because you were describing – what you are describing is like there's this layer that keeps out the oxygen. Mm-hmm. But oxidization is sort of this idea of degradation. You know, as oxygen molecules hit it, we get like rust and stuff like that. Um Yeah, I don't know if that has anything to do with anything, but...
2: Oh, well, I mean, it kind of does. I mean, if we're going to, you know, analyze this, like overanalyze, Chris (laughs) does offer pure oxygen. It would oxidize. You get into that post-apocalyptic world right there.
1: Oh, that's crazy. I still still don't understand the concept of an oxygen bar now, especially now. Like, what is the deal with that? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that is fascinating. I wonder what the weirdest preserved... uh, artifact was, that is kind of interesting to think about. I guess you were saying you can have, like, human bodies embalmed or something in in this uh, bogs and stuff. That's kind of creepy to imagine.
2: Yeah, uh, they used to entomb human bodies into there in old civilizations because even then they knew that there was something special about these bogs and wow um, keeping the body intact though depending on the acidity of the bog i think it affects the skin and the bone so you could have one situation where like the skin is fine but the bone is completely gone or mm. vice versa where it's yeah. preserved like that so we get to the next scene where we see maggie stepping out
1: her front door
2: and she's seeing that there is now a excavation site in her front yard with Hauling and two returning guest stars.
1: Ron and Eric, I'm very glad to have them back. I always like when they're in an episode. Uh, sort of like uh, Samansky. in that they're not in as many episodes anymore. But uh, yeah, I wonder what the, let's see, when was the last time we saw Ron and Eric? Were they present for the Ira um, Wedding episode? I don't think so. I think that was just um, Adam and Eve. Let's see. Yeah, I think the last time we saw them was in the third season, an episode called The Final Frontier. They have that um, bed and breakfast where the Japanese tourists come to see their Aurora Borealis. That's a cool. Uh, I like that plot line as well.
2: Oh, yeah. It's kind of like strange, but they're utilized in Marisa's case because of their sexual orientation. That yeah. That would to be like a really odd thing.
1: I understand uh, that's. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah. I I
2: understand why Maurice does it because he's a bigot (laughs) right there. And. (laughs) This, I just found it really strange, but we don't have to harp too much on that.
1: I but love that. It's like I, I I get where Maurice is coming from because he's wrong. <laughs> it's, like, it's like I don't agree with him at all, but I can understand where he's coming from. Go ahead. Sorry.
2: Yeah. So essentially, Maurice has hired these two because he finds that they are very good at excavation work. One of them is actually holding a adjunct professor title of anthropology at New Hampshire. The other one has done general carpentry work. So. You know, why not? It's
1: pretty funny because Maurice is like talking them up their credentials. And I think he, at first when he says um, the adjunct professor, he mentions like a different university. And uh, it's either Ron or Eric has to correct him. He's like, no, it's not. It's like a bit lower, but (laughs) sure. And uh, then the other one he says like he's a great excavator. And again, it's either Ron or Eric, but he says, uh, yeah, my dad did some contracting work. So I guess that qualifies me (laughs) like, you know, they're they're not super qualified, but, um, uh, yeah, I, it was, we didn't, we kind of glossed over it, but the, the whole bigotry that Maurice plays in this scene is he says, Ron and Eric are perfect at this because they have the strength of masculine men, but, the maybe perfectionism and delicacy of, the femininity of that aspect of their characters, which of course is, um, yeah, just like totally, um, what's the word? Like prejudiced, I guess, in that like, you know, he's assuming these uh, broad terms, broad roles, I guess. Yeah. I think that
2: plays out throughout the episode though, where we assume on gender roles mm-hmm. and you, we can move forward from there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll weave that in later, but in this scene, we see that this is where we're establishing where Maggie gets a contract with Maurice in order for them to start excavating into her front yard. And she's kind of signing over the rights of whatever they find. She gets a little bit of a cut, but essentially there's just going to be a full crew there just working on her front yard.
1: Yeah. She kind of argues for a sec because the contract says she gets 40%. Uh, she doesn't find that to be very fair, but Maurice uh, explains that, you know, he's putting up all the money for it. Sure. But like, this is her property She has, I don't know exactly how these contracts work, uh, but she agrees because um, they're going to name the O'Connell site. They're going to name it after her. And uh, she gets first dibs on whatever trinkets they find, I think, except for uh, very specifically, what is it, like death rattles or something? Like Ron and Eric really, they have a collection of like death rattles. So if we find any of those.
2: I think it's like shaman. Shaman shaman rattles
1: or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, yeah, she signs on to it. Uh, but slowly begins to um, have second thoughts about it. Like, they're kind of pushy. Like, for instance, Maurice is like, you know, remember we told you, like, don't come out through your front door. Try to leave through your back door because we're we're digging here. The men are digging here.
2: So that brings us to the next scene where Maggie is in Joel's office with Marilyn and Ruthann. And they're talking about all these artifacts that they're finding right there. And what's really neat is that they're talking about how these artifacts are you know, the roles that they're doing are still the roles that women are doing at that time were the same. Like they sew, we sew. They cook, we cook. So we see that the traditions, cultures, and systems are preserving the roles. Much like how the peat preserves the physical things, the systems are preserving the roles right there. And I think it's really interesting of a thought that even though you're separated by what could be thousands of years right there, they're doing essentially the same thing and that the progress isn't moving forward. And because of that, that's what fires up all three women in the office. They start talking about, you know, the problem with men. And that's where we get a pretty funny scene of Joel walking in and, you know, he's being pretty much uh, shunned out of his own office.
1: <laughs> yeah, they all stare at him. Uh, it's Marilyn, Ruth Ann, and Maggie. Joel, like, walks into the they're in the lobby or like in the guest area you know, where Marilyn's desk is, he needs something for Marilyn. Uh, you know, and she's his assistant, you know, so he he calls on Marilyn and then he's just met with these glares. They all I think even like Ruth Ann or someone crosses their arms. He just stare at him, and he's like, "No, no, no, no! I'm not gonna be vibed out of my own office." That's what he says. <laughs> he's like, "Okay, you, you have five minutes." So he's like, "Take your takes, take a break or something." But yeah, he's getting these these vibes. Uh, but no, I thought I thought what you were talking about uh, pretty expertly put the idea that uh, women's roles are sort of frozen in time uh, still today in a way. Like these are these. Uh, Items that are preserved sort of show us that, you know, what women were doing a long time ago is not not too indifferent from what is happening today. And that's what, like you said, fires them up to, uh, you know. Well, Maggie points out, it's like, you know, this is like uh, something that she feels like she's really connecting to, to the past in a way, uh, to women throughout history, all the way to today and maybe into the future. It's, it's just funny that men are are the ones that are just like, Exploring and plundering, she says, and destroying, like uh, overtaking everything. Uh, It all has to be about conquest with men, I think she says later.
2: Yeah, she's saying a conquest, but not just that. Even though conquest does imply that they're finding new territory, maybe physically, but not mentally. Because we see that in the episode, we had talked about it earlier with Brad, But Chris and Holling kind of want to preserve the status quo. They are imparting their own past life lessons onto the next generation. Mm. So they want to keep the course. Whereas Maggie wants to disrupt. She wants to change this patriarchy and she wants to change course.
1: Yeah, I like that. And it's an important distinction, the fact that uh, what Holling and Chris are doing are sort of uh, not necessarily innocent in their own way, because preserving the status quo of you know what it, what should be a normal uh, you know growth for this young man, um, it, normal in their in this context, and Maggie seeks to disrupt you know seeks to change what uh, what status quo she's put in, and well, there is actually this um, interesting dream sequence. You know, of course, what is Northern Exposure without a dream sequence? We get another one. With sort of this Little Red Riding Hood theme. I think that's the next Maggie scene. But tell us about that.
2: Yeah, so it's a dream sequence where Maggie is being the Epidemus Little Red Riding Hood. It's the old fairy tale right there. And she gets stopped along the way by this well-dressed man-wolf hybrid (laughs) right there. Yeah. And smoking a pipe.
1: Very Freudian. You know, like the jacket, uh, the pipe... This is actually, I wanted to point out, this actor who plays the wolf is um, the same actor that played Pete Gillum in the first episode of the show. This was the guy who Joel sees about, um, you know, when he, when he arrives in Alaska, they basically say, no, you're not going to Anchorage. You're going to the Alaskan Riviera, Sicily, you know, um, it's the same actor there. So like way back from the first season. What is this scene about? It's sort of like these sexual Freudian fan, like, okay, so he calls her out for her uh, subconscious. He says, I'm a subconscious manifestation of your primal male fantasy fixations. So he makes it like sexual and Oedipal, uh, you know, in a way for, for Maggie. But is that the proper interpretation of what's going on?
2: I've seen Little Red Riding Hood interpreted in that manner where it's about the development of a woman from a girl into a full-fledged adult and that the menstrual period could be symbolized in her red hood. Hmm. It's even used in uh, Stephen Sondheim's musical Into the Woods where the Little Red Riding Hood character is enthralled with the wolf where she's excited Ah. because he symbolizes like what losing your virginity could be. Uh, I think that's what they're trying to go for in this one. Though it kind of flips the script where Maggie is incredibly mad when she wakes up and realizes what the wolf has done. He's trying to manipulate her, essentially right there, into what the wolf wants into seizing that basket. And I think it's really interesting that it's a fairy tale that is also showing what systems were in place in the past. So... Not only are traditions and cultures the one that are propping up uh, a male-dominated society, we can also see it in fairy tales.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I loved that connection to sort of like, you know, the story of like a young girl uh, becoming a woman and like how that could be symbolized through Red Riding Hood. But also what's important is Maggie's reaction to that when she wakes up. I, that's that's really good. I mean, obviously I saw that, but I didn't interpret it that way. That's I think it's like very key reading of that. So you think it's like Maggie realizing sort of these cultural associations uh, with sort of like female desire but sort of uh, wanting to rock against that
2: maybe? I think she's just really peeved at the fact that it's a man that's trying to manipulate her Mm. into something that he wants. Even if it is the right thing or wrong thing, I don't want to have to – make a statement on that, but it's the act of him trying to guide her or mostly like manipulate her into it. It's not from a good place because as we know in the story, the wolf isn't a good character.
1: Exactly, yeah. And then obviously in the dream, you know, he's totally playing a fast one on her and like steals the basket from her. He seems like a very convincing and calming presence, but uh, he's very slick and has some like sinister intentions perhaps. Well, okay, after she wakes from the dream- Oh- (laughs) man this is uh i i kind of skipped ahead she ends up eating the contract that was very cool but there's a lot in that scene so i guess that's the next scene we're going to right
2: yeah we're getting into this really empowering scene for maggie where she leaves from the front door instead of just leaving from the back door which i guess is also like a symbolic thing like even though it has he has real reasoning for wanting her to leave from the back door because he, he doesn't want her to interfere with the excavation site. Mm-hmm. It's still condescending to be like, you're a woman, you leave from the back door. Yeah, it's and like- we men will go from the front door.
1: Yeah, it's like in a way like maybe these discoveries that uh, in history that are made by women, uh, history maybe remembers the male characters and the women get like the footnote. That's represented mm-hmm. by like, you go through the back door, you get the footnote, we're on the front page. Right, Definitely. right,
2: I like that. And, yeah, this is where she confronts Maurice, and she wants all the men to leave her property.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I actually have a soundbite pulled for this scene, so let's let's take a listen. <laughs> now, Maggie. Don't now Maggie me, Maurice. I mean it. Everyone
0: out. Skat. Shoo. Shoo. Maggie, there's no need to get upset here. I'm not upset, Maurice. Well, O'Connell, you're upset. I mean... No, this is not upset. No, upset is collapsing on your bed in tears because you weren't invited to the prom. No, this is
1: empowered. You know, you know what empowered is? Well, empowered is Anne Boleyn laughing on the way to the chopping block, apologizing to her executioner for her small neck. That's empowered. Do you think a man would have done that? No, a man wouldn't have had the guts. He would have peed in his pants. He would have begged for mercy, but Anne didn't even break a sweat. You know why? Because she was empowered. She knew who she was, and I know who I am, and I want all you men off my property. Now! Yeah, and then right after that, Chris tries to explain that like in Mesopotamian times, women were like in charge and she even like shoes Chris out. She's like, shut up, like get out of here. I think she calls him like a a skinny twerp or something. Yeah, this is, yeah. And she eats the contract right in front of Maurice, which I think is awesome. Like a very, it's kind of frightening and vulgar in a way, but it's uh, it's so cool to see Maggie do that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's really interesting that uh, Joel, who I, actually viewed as mostly innocent throughout this episode does commit a flaw in that he says like oh you're being upset o'connell and he's trying to he he's trying to put what he perceives to what she's feeling into actual substance so Mm -hmm. in another way he's trying to explain how things are to her right there and she even says like i'm not though and yeah just because you say so it is doesn't make it reality yeah but yeah otherwise i think that joel has been like Pretty harmless. I, I feel like he's just caught in the crosshair in
1: this episode. <laughs> well, there like, is. Sorry, did we skip over? There's a scene with them at the brick where like, it's actually like two scenes. It's kind of the same scene because they continue into each other. They're like mm-hmm. at the bar and they're talking about some things. And then Maggie ends up going to the pool table and Joel follows her there. Uh, what Has that happened yet or? No, it's about to happen. Oh, okay. Though. So we haven't skipped that. So that must be next, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is like a famous, uh, I've seen this on Twitter and like on the Facebook where this is uh screen grabbed and quoted a lot. The, uh, history, his story sort of monologue that, uh, that Mar- Maggie gives.
2: Okay. So in 2021, that's really played out to the point in which like that's parody, <laughs> Like, you could almost say it to that degree. I don't know if it, it had that effect in 1993, though. Like, was that actually, like, groundbreaking revisionist to be like, wait a second, those two words.
1: When <laughs> you combine them, words. hang on now. and <laughs> Green is people. <laughs> or no, what is it? Uh, to Serve Man, it's a cookbook. Sorry, spoilers. Uh, no, yeah. Uh, no, I think it's a powerful – I think it's still – Cool to see that today. I think you're right. Like, of course, it's not groundbreaking. (laughs) Maybe it was, perhaps, groundbreaking at the time, like you're suggesting. Um, But, but anyway, uh, part of that quote, Maggie says, "Everything about the way we perceive things in life is determined by men." Uh, She lists a lot of history's great women that are, you know, she starts. uh, I think uh, one, like she says, Empress Theodora, Catherine the Great. And for some of those, Joel is like, wait, uh, like Clueless obviously doesn't know what she's talking about.
2: Right, and I, I rewatched that scene actually and I thought that maybe Joel did a mistake to trigger this, but it doesn't seem like it. It seems like Maggie just went offensive on Joel because she says like, oh, do you think I'm this way because of PMS? If Joel had mentioned that, then I think that could have been a good rebuttal. But yeah. Joel didn't say, he hasn't really said anything, honestly. I think um, it's
1: typical for the show to like, characterize maggie as overreacting and uh because this is this happens a lot where she like kind of is enraged and is like doing this kind of thing though i'm very happy that she does like get a victory in that previous scene like you know she does stand up to these people and by the end of the episode like she gets her way so you know it's not uncommon for the show to to have a scene like this where maggie is like i guess i said overreacting or like kind of blowing up you know Mm -hmm. but. Maybe that's what that is in this scene. But I think it's warranted and I think uh, – or at least, you know, I, I'm glad that she succeeds in the end.
2: I think it's a really neat detail that Joel is wearing a red shirt in this scene and Maggie is wearing a barn jacket that can be worn by women, but, like, mostly you see men wearing barn jackets.
1: Mm. Yeah. What do you think uh, What do you is going on there?
2: It's a little bit of a gender flip right there. Yeah. Uh, because we just talked about Little Red Riding Hood. Right. Yeah, we and had that dream. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, even if we're outside of the context of – uh Man versus woman or, like, man being stronger than woman. Gender flip. Uh, just, you know, just, like, not necessarily thinking of it in terms of gender, but uh, these clothes maybe uh, have some sort of power on their own. But, of course, in this scene, uh, Maggie is the one who's, like, empowered over Joel.
2: Right, right. How does it end?
1: Because uh, I know Joel follows her to the pool table.
2: Uh, it ends with her just lashing out and then the scene kind of <laughs> just ends. Right,
1: right. But the next time we see her is through some binoculars. I want to say maybe I'm skipping, but like the men have all gathered because they aren't excavating anymore. So they're like off of Maggie's land. They're all standing around uh, drinking some uh, single malt scotch. I want to say Lafroig, fifteen year old or something, out of a out of a flask. They're passing the flask, passing the binoculars. Like what are they doing now? Uh, but all of the women have gathered yeah. in Maggie's yard. Sorry, go ahead.
2: Yeah, kind of an odd uh, thing to do. I find it's very but like also... high
1: school, like you know, like the boys are on one <laughs> one side of the playground, or like not high school, but like elementary school. The the boys are on one side of the playground, girls are on the other.
2: Yeah, have have you ever drank Lafroy
1: before? Uh if I have, it's with you and one of our friends. Because I do like scotch, but I haven't. Um, definitely not. I've never bought like a very expensive bottle, but I've probably shared it some with you.
2: The neat thing about Lafroy, and I don't like it, because Ooh. you have to keep drinking it in order to get like acquired taste. But the number one word to used to describe Lafroy is peaty.
1: Right. That's I saw you going there. Yeah, I didn't know that, but uh, yeah, I know like some scotch can be peaty. Is peaty like the same as smoky or different? Uh, let's no. find out. Yeah, definitely. I've heard I've heard scotch described as smoky as peaty. But that's yeah, that I'm I'm sure that they did that purposefully.
2: It's a word used to describe the wide range of flavors its combustion provides, depending on how and where it's harvested. Hmm. So yeah, the common belief is that scotch is made in steels heated by peat moss fires. So oh, wow. that's where the word comes from.
1: Wow. Yeah. No, but yeah, yeah, I definitely don't think that's a mistake. I think that was on purpose that they're drinking this pe- very peaty scotch. And we're talking about the preservatives that are in the soil in Maggie's yard. Uh, so yeah, the the women of town have all gathered in Maggie's yard and their plan is to bury everything back. What do you think about this?
2: Yeah, it's like a time capsule where they're just taking the artifacts from the past, but also an artifact from today, oh, a carrot right. peeler. Yeah, yeah. Ruth Ann drops in it with a that.
1: Sorry. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It's all right. I thought it was a pretty neat scene right there. Uh, I like time capsules just as a concept in television shows and in real life because mm-hmm. um, they're always like, it's. It's super easy to get the symbolism in there if you were writing that scene. Yeah. You know, you're always going to be thinking about the past and thinking about the future. So like a time castle is just like a really neat, handy way to do it. But yeah, uh, all the women are over there and they're all helping Maggie shovel the dirt back up to bring these relics back to where they belong, which is where the dirt is. I find it really telling that Maggie is wearing red underneath in this scene.
1: Ah. Do you think their act of burying these artifacts is in a way to preserve them or to put them to rest finally? Like maybe I'm uh, overextending the, the analysis here, but we were talking about how Maggie wants to disrupt and to change things. And is this in a way putting to rest these old, these, um, antiquated social, cultural norms of women and trying something new, maybe?
2: I like that. I like that interpretation. I didn't go there.
1: Yeah, I I didn't think about it until just now, until our conversation. So (laughs) I feel like I'm definitely overreaching here, but it's a thought.
2: (laughs) No, no, no. I, I like that thought. I also think that another one to add would be that originally the men wanted to dig it up and put it into museums or to sell it to collectors but basically they wanted to get it out of the dirt they don't want it there anymore and that would imply that they want new adventurous things because you're out of an area and into a new area whereas the women are putting it back into the old area so that would seem counterintuitive but it's the women's choice to put it back into the dirt and that makes the difference the the conscious decision.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like counterintuitive, but uh I don't know, it makes for a pretty cool ending of an episode, I'd say. The music that's featured here, I want to point out, someone on Facebook in the Facebook group the Club NX was talking about having just watched this episode and they really liked the ending song. The ending song on the DVD is like this um oh, I had it saved. It's like this Italian, I think it's an Italian, it's very operatic. Let me figure out what it's called. So according to Shazam, it was Don Giovanni Madamina Tu Catalogo E Questo, <laughs> by Compagnia d'Opera Italiana dot dot dot. I I don't get the full name of the artist. But yeah, so very operatic sounding. But I believe the, you know, I think it's pretty effective. Uh the, the music that's playing here. I like I think it fits pretty well. But the music that it should be there, you know, on broadcast, the way it aired. Would have been the song "Tango to Evora" by Lorena McKinnitt. Um, this music sounds like uh, it's got a very similar vibe to it, uh, but it's not nec- it's not opera. It's kind of more of um, like a like a concert. What's the word I'm looking for? Like a symphony in a way. Concerto. Um, concerto. Maybe you know something of that style. So it doesn't have lyrics or anything, but it still has a similar vibe. Mm, okay. But yeah, I just thought that would be important to mention because uh, at least one person was very fond of the uh, the broadcast music version.
2: Okay, that brings us to the last plot point of Ed, who kind of transcends the problems of what uh, Maggie and Holly and Chris are dealing with. Not that they're not important ones, but that Ed's is a perceived problem that will affect everybody, literally everything, plants rocks, all living human beings, the planet itself. Uh, it should be affected by this problem, which is, what is a good word for this? Is it climate change? Is that the proper word?
1: Uh, I was, you know, they do talk about climate change in this show. They don't really talk too much about it. They don't name it, I think, in this episode, but I was calling it, in my notes, environmentalism.
2: That's a good one.
1: That's kind of what we learned when we were in school, environmentalism. We, of course, we got the character Mike Monroe, Pretty early on in the episode, uh, Ed gets to sort of geek out with Mike about uh, the end of the world. Uh, Ed is telling him about the dream he had. Mike is like, oh, yeah, I get those dreams all the time. (laughs) And I have this written down. I thought this was interesting. Mike says, the human mind doesn't think in geological increments. So according to Mike, the end of the world is going to be sort of like a slow painful, uh, you know, slow degradation of the earth, uh, to where it slowly becomes uninhabitable. Whereas like us as humans, we might expect it to, uh, you know, for instance, in Ed's dream, we expect this crazy dystopian future, but according to Mike, we won't get there. It'll slowly fall apart.
2: Uh, terribly depressing thoughts right there from (laughs) Mike.
1: (laughs) The inconvenient truth, I guess, you know, and that's like, maybe that's partly why Maggie wasn't uh, hearing Ed out in the beginning, probably just because Maggie was like pretty fascinated with some stuff which she was finding. But I feel like uh, Ed has that burden throughout the entire episode that no one, it's hard for anyone to understand what he's doing. Uh, and its I guess he's, it, he's not really great at communicating it, but at least he's got right. Mike for this episode. Sorry, sorry, go ahead.
2: No, no, no. That's really neat that you say that. He's not really great at communicating, except in the mediums that he understands, mm. which is film. Yeah. So he gets this idea in the next scene, which is in Ruthann's store, where he's gotten all these items that he thinks will contribute to the ozone layer being depleted. Uh, he grabs a bunch of uh, hairspray, uh, some plastic. Uh, I'm assuming it's because it won't recycle well. <laughs> and he shovels them all into this wheelbarrow, and then Ruthann wants him to clean up the mess immediately. She's yeah, like, this is my store. I will do what I want. She's obviously coming from that previous scene of... Uh, you know, her, Marilyn, and Maggie being <laughs> empowered in Joel's office. And that's where Ann also asks Ed, where's the videotape display that she was asking for? And then Ed's mind jumps and he says, wait, videotape? Film? Like, that's how I'm going to explain all these things. I'm going to make, like, a documentary or a movie on this.
1: Yeah, that's that's his kind of jumping off point into understanding that that's, that's his best uh, means of communication. I did find it interesting that you know, obviously Ruthann is pretty upset with Ed. She's like, what are you doing to my store? I've got to, you know, the the, the world's going to end, but I have a store to run. But I thought it was interesting that Ed abdicates pretty easily. Like Ruthann is pretty curt with him uh, at first. And then uh, she's asks him, please, you know, and Ed just agrees because Ed, you know, well, he does, he does try to stand up and explain to her, like, you know, this is a problem that is going to end the world. But, then when she asks him, please, he just says, "Okay, I'll put this up." <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting. It, the tension was diffused quite easily, but no, you know this this scene really doesn't serve as uh, it's not supposed to be there for this argument. It's more for the for the reason of Ed realizing the the idea of film being his medium.
2: Yeah, Ed was like ten years ahead of Al Gore for <laughs> an inconvenient truth yeah. right there. <laughs> It just, like, I find that one really fascinating because at the time when Inconvenient Truth came out, I think that was, like, the public opinion of it was that he was overreacting and that he was either straight-fibbing or just overly dramatic at that point. And I think it's really neat that 10 years before Northern Exposure was trying to make this into, like, a pretty serious deal. Obviously, this predates Northern Exposure as well. Yeah. But... For them to even talk about it, it was really neat.
1: Yeah. Uh, Again, like I I do think uh, a lot of, you know, when we were talking, I was talking about like, uh, I asked some people online, uh, some fans of the show, what they thought about Mike Monroe. And a lot of people who liked him or appreciated uh, certain aspects of the character would always talk about he's sort of a mouthpiece for this conservationalism and environmentalism. Uh, which is which was kind of rare maybe at the time, you know, or in a way like a pioneer for some of those thoughts uh, on TV at least.
2: Yeah, that brings us to the next scene where Ed is with Mike and Mike's going to be his poster child. It's going to be his poster boy <laughs> in terms of setting this film up. And I find this film to be really strange. So the premise <laughs> of it is that Ed's going to record Mike with two tomatoes one's homegrown and the other one was bought from a supermarket. And he's going to rub the tomatoes on each arm and whichever tomato causes like a chemical reaction. That's the bad tomato. Like that's, (laughs) that's like, we shouldn't go there. But it's like, there's so many factors that could have caused this. It's like,
1: (laughs) it's not a great, yeah. It's kind of an interesting way to visualize this problem. It doesn't really communicate the, you know, it's, it's maybe ill conceived. Like he's, he needs to go back to the drawing board. Uh, I was pretty excited at first. The setup of this scene, like when you first jump into the scene, because we got the camera set up. Mike is like at the kitchen counter with the tomatoes. It feels like they're about to make a cooking show, and I love cooking shows. That would be so cool. But yeah, that the idea is like they'll they rub the tomatoes on the skin, and Ed has to stop it. He's like, "Cut, cut, film, like, cut, stop rolling." He says, "Mike, if if this tomato is like turning your skin red." Imagine what happens when you eat it. Like what's what it's gonna do to your insides. Ed is freaking out. Uh I think it's Ed that says, like, the world isn't ending. It's already over. Like this, we're already there. This is the end of the world. Is that doesn't Ed say something to that effect?
2: He does. Uh he's basically resigned to his fate, where he thinks, like, oh well, like I, I guess the other side, like they won, whoever the abstract they is.
1: Yeah. And uh I'm going to move on to the next part, the next scene, because I think, uh, you know, he's pretty down and out. He realizes that his idea to communicate like a dystopian future or this peril that's facing us all, uh, it's already the focus of many famous films. He mentions like Blade Runners. like I don't know if he mentions Soylent Green. Uh, I should have listed. Why didn't I list he this? did. Yeah, he, he he lists like all these dystopian movies and he says, you know, people have seen this before but no one listens. It's no use. Uh Ruth Ann ends up I think he's in Ruth Ann's store cuz she kicks him out or she says like, you know, go go for a jog or go do you know, go uh cut some wood or something. You know, it's like when Mike focuses on some dreadful ideas Uh, No one wants to hear that. It's the same with Ed, you know?
2: Yeah, it's serious gloom and doom with them. And that brings us to the next scene with Ed and Mike again, where Ed is talking about the famous film Jurassic Park.
1: Yes, which at the time of the air date, it hasn't come out yet, but it must have been advertised like crazy. You know, obviously I could imagine seeing trailers for that when you go to the movies uh, coming this summer, you know, because it came out, uh, let's see, I think the wide release was June 11th. Though I think maybe it got its first release June 9th. Uh, Those are pretty close dates. So, 1993, summer. Uh, Yeah, big, big hit. Um, And obviously, like people were talking about it in January of 1993. Because, you know, Ed already knows the plot of the movie, or he knows some plot elements. The idea that they find some DNA for a dinosaur trapped in this uh, mosquito caught in amber, and they can recreate these dinosaurs. So Ed gets the idea that he's got to preserve all life in this manner for aliens later to come and clone us back to um to normal, I guess. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, some far-reaching stuff from Ed right there. Though, uh I find this really interesting. So the plot of Jurassic Park or not necessarily the plot, but like The theme is that man shouldn't go beyond the boundaries of what men are allowed to do. (laughs) So you should be like respecting nature, respect the boundaries. Well, this is kind of a, a side tangent, but this was how dinosaur bones were treated after Jurassic Park came out. So back in 93, 92, around that era, there was a paleontologist named Pete Larson, and he was kind of... A person who wanted to find dinosaur bones and just sell them off. Now, he wasn't hoping to make a business out of it, but he was one of the rare paleontologists that wanted to go around from different ranches to ranches and go dig up dinosaur bones. And in one particular area, he was with a woman named Sue. And Sue was walking her dog, and she discovered a perfectly preserved dinosaur. And they hurriedly excavated this dinosaur up, And they named it Sue. And it's one of the most prestigious, gorgeous dinosaurs. Uh, It's a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Nice. And it was just perfectly built. But unfortunately, the land in which he dug it up, Juan, was belonging to a rancher who gave them the right to dig in the land, but not to what was found on the land. So they got into a huge legal dispute as to who actually owned Sue. And unfortunately, Pete Larson lost to the rancher. The court ruled in the rancher's favor, and the rancher got the bones of Sue and decided to auction them. So this was going to be a huge auction because Sue was perfectly preserved. And a lot of museums were in the bidding. The Smithsonian was one of them, and a lot of private individuals as well. That just wanted a fancy dinosaur in their, <laughs> you know, in, in their in living
1: their room.
2: House. <laughs> yeah. So the last two bidders was a private individual and the Chicago Field Museum. And for $7.6 million, the Chicago Field Museum barely squeaked by and they got sued. But unfortunately, that opened up the floodgates because people realized that you can make a huge profit out of dinosaur bones. $7.6 million. So what started out as a tradition of trying to find dinosaur bones and trying to retrace history, people were now scrambling like the gold rush to get more dinosaur bones. (laughs) And it was really bad for the paleontologists because they wouldn't respect or even document what they were finding. They would just try to quickly hurry up, dig up the dinosaur bones, and just sell them off. And... That made a lot of them really pissed. And what even hurt them further was that at the time, Jurassic Park came out <laughs> and that further brought interest into dinosaur bones. So <laughs> Dinosaur it really crazy.
1: The world was dinosaur crazy.
2: But uh, some of the paleontologists, though, are in the other end. where they're saying, like, that's not necessarily a bad thing because previously, we would find a dinosaur, like, one every six months. It mm-hmm. was like a rare occurrence. Now you can find them, like, shoot dude like in a 20 hour span. So they said they like increased it rapidly. So finding dinosaur bones which would have degraded in a way if you did not find them. Yeah. Finding them was better as a net positive yeah. than just letting them disappear forever.
1: Yeah, there's that silver lining. That's that's true. They're more popular so it's more likely to be handled carelessly, but at least uh, we find some more frequency with our discoveries there. But yeah, in this so in this context, preserving Biological life on Earth. They meticulously go through. I think they're filming it too, but I could be wrong. I think maybe maybe they aren't, but they're just like taking the seeds out of tomatoes. Um, Well, it's interesting. I think Mike says start with ferns. Can't remember why. Maybe because it's like very prehistoric or something. There's some of the oldest life on Earth, maybe. But they end up harvesting seeds from tomatoes, putting them in little vials and labeling them. But I don't know. What's the point? <laughs> like, what did I you think, think of still, this? Uh, I
2: think it's kind of neat. I, I think it's to look toward the future. In yeah. that, In order to preserve these seeds, we're going to meticulously document each one of these and we're going to show the next generation of what used to be here. I think me and you both are familiar with this one, uh, the Siege of Leningrad and the Seed Bank.
1: No. Tell me.
2: That was... Uh, yeah, it's from an old Anthropocene-reviewed episode. Oh, where
1: Oh, yeah, John Green podcast. Okay, yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, so for the people who don't know about this, it's, very quickly, I'll explain this. There used to be, way back in like around 1940s, during World War II time, there was the Institute of Plant Industry, and its main goal was finding seeds and preserving them for the future generation. But unfortunately, at the time, the city of Leningrad was going to go through its siege from Nazi Germany, And it was one of the most brutal sieges ever. Hundreds of thousands of casualties just starved out. And the people that were working in the Institute of Plant Industries, they locked themselves in there to prevent the people from breaking in to eat the seeds. And they themselves, instead of surviving, they actually just would rather die than to eat the seeds. So they survived for 28 months of the siege and 28 botanists died protecting it.
1: Wow. Yeah. I mean, hey, I guess... uh if you're dedicated to your that is like your life's work maybe i don't know if that's their life's work but you know that's sort of their mission wow they really um put the put the science in front of them that's kind of kind of crazy to think about but honorable i guess so maybe we can relate that to some of the what ed is tr- trying to do here with his um preservation with mike here preserving these seeds it's similar to um uh, in some ways you know to the idea of uh putting the Putting the native artifacts back into the soil, I don't know. Just the the con the i the appearance of preservation, maybe.
2: Oh, I get like what you mean. Yeah, no, that's a really neat one. They're, um, they're very different. Just returning I guess, it but, back, but yeah, yeah.
1: Sorry, yeah, returning <laughs> it back. Got to say, I think uh, Mike grows on me when he doesn't really. Uh, I, I think the my biggest issue with Mike in some previous episodes is his interaction with Maggie and trying to make that romance happen. When, of course, the show Northern Exposure really hinges on uh, the will they, won't they of Maggie and Joel. I think that is like sort of our central sort of like relationship uh, storyline. So whenever Mike's not interfering there, uh, I like the, you know, we saw him in last episode. We saw him play lawyer, which is very cool to see that aspect of his character. And in this episode, we see the more conservational environmentalist mindset you know can be tapped you know ed has an outlet there so it's nice to have that i guess
2: yeah but my worry is that once you get these two issues out what yeah, other that's parts true. of mike are still left to be found because they kind of painted him to be a one-dimensional character where he's only like you're a lawyer or you're an environmentalist
1: yeah those were like the flavors of mike when he was introduced and you know the the primary uh primary focus when he was first introduced was sort of like an antagonal presence against Joel and sort of this relationship for Maggie. And of course we knew like, you know, he's got this, he's he used to be a lawyer. He's very, uh, environmental, uh, thinking. And so now that we've played all of those notes, what else can he do? That's a good point. We'll, we'll have to see, you know, we're still, we still got Mike. Uh, so let's see if he returns next episode or where his character will grow from here forward. All right, Charles, now is the time of our episode to introduce our guest. Uh, This is usually someone who has never seen the show before. And in this case, this is my friend Ben. Um, It occurs to me that we've already had a guest named, you know, my friend Ben. This is another, this is a separate Ben. In fact, I, I, you know, when I think about it, I know a lot of Ben's and maybe I should have planned it out to where we could just have all the bins in a row. That would have been <laughs> interesting, but uh, we, maybe we can expect to, see, to hear from more bins uh, in this season. But anyway, this uh, Ben, he's a filmmaker. And as I said, this is his first time watching the show. I don't know if he had heard of it before, but without going too much into that, let's just hear in his own words what he thought of this episode.
0: Hello, Ben Maynard here. Uh, So I watched an episode of Northern Exposure for the very first time. I watched uh, Season 4, Episode 11, Survival of the Species. Uh, And uh, so this episode opens with this uh, post-apocalyptic sequence of, uh, you know, these people in this bar. uh, And they're wearing, like, acid raincoats. Uh, The water is 56% pure. And you get the impression that this is not, you know, the normal for the show. And obviously it wasn't. This was a dream that uh, the character Ed was having. And uh, this related to what his portion of the episode was going to be about. Uh, You know, his fear of global warming, the end of the human species, pandemics, plagues happening. Which, you know, that struck me as interesting. The show is, you know, almost 30 years old. And uh, it's still apparently really relevant today. Uh, these are all things that we are grappling with right f-ing now. Uh, so either, you know, this show's really ahead of its time or humans are really bad at listening and implementing change. Um, you know, and, uh, the show's other storylines also kind of, they were all very relevant. There was Maggie, uh, who is dealing with the Indian artifacts that she found on her property and the archaeological dig. Uh, that a group of men, you know, came in, a group of white men <laughs> came in and they were harvesting all of these Native American artifacts and they were planning on selling them and making money off of this other culture, you know, typical kind of colonial white male bullshit. And Maggie was, you know, standing up for them against that and it was kind of a, a women's em- empowerment thing. Uh, she got some of the other local ladies involved in the town which was, you know, that was cool. And then uh, the other storyline was like the uh, the young, uh, like Brad, the kid who like ran away from camp and he's at the bar and he's like, you know, what am I going to do, crime or love? Uh, and every time I saw Brad, I just kept thinking, this guy looks like a young Anthony LaPaglia. Like, I feel like that was the reference point given to like hair, the hair stylist and whoever did his wardrobe. Um, maybe it was his son. I don't know. I, I need to go back and watch the credits. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, Brad chose love over crime and ended up, you know, going back to the summer camp. I don't know. going back to Maggie, like she also had like a weird dream sequence where like she was little Red Riding Hood and then there was the wolf. Uh, and you know, they were trying to deal with her, for lack of a better word, her issues or her dilemma. Um, of figuring out what bothered her so much about, you know, the men being in control. Um, and so I wonder, like, are dream sequences a regular occurrence on this show or was this like a one off episode thing? And also, like, are we gonna see more? Like, is it a continuous storyline? Are we, like, Ed was, you know, collecting the seeds, uh, for like a seed bank in case, uh, aliens could clone the the plants or you know whatever in the future after we all died like are we going to see ed in future episodes like still collecting seeds he's going to be on to like pumpkin seeds or sunflower seeds or you know whatever cuz uh revenge of the nerds guy anthony edwards said there're 250,000 seeds so i don't know i'm interested in ed's seed journey and i hope that more of that plays out uh, but overall, like, I enjoyed the show. It was good. Um, I'd watch it again. It was kind of strange. I thought the, one thing I thought was a little bit creepy was the, the Holling-Shelly relationship. Like, uh, just the way they kind of talked about that. He was, like, so much older than her. So that was just, like, a little, a little creepy. But there was, uh, there was a lot of great 90s language throughout. Like, dudette. Like, I haven't heard dudette in forever. Um, so, gonna be trying to bring that one back. Um, and in regards to the question, have you ever been in a situation where you were stuck or didn't want to be in a place? And in the end, you hopefully gained something or found yourself changed for the better. Uh, and yeah, I mean, sure. I've, I've been stuck in a place I didn't want to be in. I feel like that's, that's most people. Everybody's been there. Um, and of course, like you definitely gain something if you're stuck. Like if, (laughs) uh, at the very least, you realize that that's not where you want to be, and it makes you start thinking about where you want to be and how to get there. And it's just like, it's, it's more of a motivator to get yourself the fuck out. Yeah, I don't know. So that was mine. I enjoyed the show. I think I am going to stick with it. I don't know how many <laughs> how many episodes are beyond Season 4, Episode 11. Does this show go on for a while? Um, I don't know. I guess I'll find out. Thanks for letting me watch, guys. See you later.
2: Okay, so he goes by Ben? Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering why there's so many Ben's, but no, like, Benny's or Benjamin's or Benji's or Benjamins.
1: Yeah, Benny uh, Benny maybe is a little too childish. Benjamin maybe too formal. Uh, in fact, some of the Ben's that I know, it's their middle name. So it's it's everyone chooses Ben for some reason. Um Benjamin, you know that that's a that's a nickname. I've definitely I feel like I've definitely called him Benjamin before.
2: <laughs> also, uh, I don't I'm not too familiar with this person that uh, Ben had mentioned. He said that Brad looked like Anthony Lapaglia,
1: a young Anthony Lapaglia. And you know what? Actually, I you know I had to Google it just to get that visual, uh, and I definitely recognize uh, I recognized the face, but then. Now that I think about it, like, where do I know him from? Trying to look at, he's got an extensive filmography. Uh, maybe he's just like a character actor. You know, he seems like to be in a lot of different roles. Apparently his, uh, he's got a, uh, in, his, in his Wikipedia, there's a whole section about um, football. So I guess he was a former, um, I, oh, look, I guess football being uh, soccer, you know? <laughs> so uh, a soccer player.
2: Oh, okay. Got it.
1: But um, no, no, uh, the, the young Brad character here is, as far as I can tell, not related to Anthony Lapaglia, though that style uh, maybe is very copied from from a young Anthony Lapaglia.
2: <laughs> so Ben mentioned that this was ahead of their time in that we're still facing the same issues from like thirty years ago to what we are now. Yeah, uh, yeah. What a thing! This is like such a strange episode to send to someone in the year twenty twenty one slash twenty twenty because we sent them in twenty nineteen. They wouldn't have thought anything otherwise. They would have been like, "Oh, okay, we'll we'll departmentalize this for like the the far future, whenever <laughs> like we go through a pandemic." Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, we're definitely. Uh, the world seems a lot more apocalyptic, I guess, now after 2020. But yeah, I do like that Ben mentioned. He says the, the show is either you know much ahead of its time. Or humans are really bad at listening and implementing change, but I think Ed sort of touches on that in this episode when he mentions like uh he can't make a film about climate change or the end of the world or the Apocalypse because there have already been great films made about about this, like very great dystopian films like Blade Runner he mentions I think he mentions Soylent Green in there sometimes. He lists off quite a few. Uh, And he says, uh, we mentioned this in our episode, he says, you know, no one gets it. Like, they've seen this, but no one has learned the lesson. So maybe that's the case here with uh, our reality. I
2: think that those films are really hard to implement.
1: Like, um, like, Like they're fictional, science fiction, so it doesn't seem as real?
2: Yeah, kind of. Well, it's just that, well, the end goal, usually in these types of films, is that they're showing that it's inevitable. Like, we've already caused... The problems on Earth, it's become too polluted to live in, or like the ozone layer has already disappeared. Like, you can't go back in time and fix these mistakes. Mm -hmm. So, the only solution you can do is plant the tree for tomorrow. Yeah. You have to hope (laughs) that whatever efforts you're doing now, you know that that will, like, your lifetime will not be enough. It has to go to the next generation and the generation after that, and, you know, so forth and so forth. And those types of messages are just really hard to drill into people because people want change instantaneously. Like, they want the solution to be solved now. They don't want it to be like, oh, the solution might be fixed hundreds of years later after this film is concluded. <laughs> I think maybe that's why there isn't that many films being made on this particular subject.
1: Yeah, I guess those films like Blade Runner, um, that's the status quo that starts off the film. So it's not like there was a some fatal flaw that brought the world to this Um, dystopian future. I mean, sure, maybe there was, but we don't see that ever. The beginning of the film is already very dystopian, kind of like the beginning of this episode, Um, you know, where it sets up. I think we mentioned it already feels like from some of Ed's monologues early on, it just sounds like the opening text crawl of a dystopian future sci-fi movie.
2: Mm, Yeah. And yes, Ben, dream sequences are very common in northern exposure i, I like that he thought that this was going to be like the only episode in which it went this wild he's like man they went re- they went really strange in this one episode
1: yeah it happens quite a lot especially in the earlier seasons but um yeah usually we're surprised if there's an episode without a dream sequence but no yeah i thought obviously <laughs> there's a lot of weird stuff happening because ben even mentions like the opening of the episode that we just mentioned. Uh, obviously seems like not standard of how this show would go. Um, and he was right. You know, it was sort of a dream sequence there. And then again, Maggie's dream sequence with the sort of like Freudian uh, wolf character. But what else did Ben touch on? Ben was latching on to the seed plot. Ed's like seed journey, as Ben called it. I don't think that they like continually show that, but I could be wrong because there are certain little plots that do last past the end of an episode. Uh, One that comes to mind is like Maurice's memoirs. Like we kind of forgot about that sometimes, but he is still writing them. He's still writing memoirs. Like that is a thread that continues to play. So maybe we see some more seed stuff from Ed. I wouldn't bet on it, but I mean, I guess it's possible.
2: I think that would be really neat if they had small parts of dialogue dedicated to that, but the whole episode wouldn't be predicated on yeah. just them continuing the seed bag. Like, I think it's neat that there's a relationship between Ed and Mike now. Yeah, but yeah. it this doesn't have to be, like, the main connecting force every single time. Yeah,
1: just, like, maybe remark on it every once in a while. I guess we'll see. Though I just thought about, this was in a past episode with um, uh, Princess the Crane. Ed mentions, like, I'm just thinking about these, like, little story crumbs that I guess are canon, but we haven't, really ever seen them before. He mentions like, he's talking to Chris and he's like, you know, I was collecting bugs for my mosquito collection. I was like, what? (laughs) Ed has, what is a mosquito collection? Why does Ed have that? And also it was never mentioned before. Uh, I guess, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know why that stuck out to me, but I guess there are certain um, items of the Northern Exposure story canon that aren't ever referenced (laughs) before, but they just pop up like that.
2: And Ben answers the question by saying that the unfortunate place that you are in can lead to motivation for wanting to get out.
1: Yeah. He says at the very least, you know, if this is a worst case scenario or um, somewhere you don't want to be, at the very least, it'll help you imagine where you need to be, you know, where you want to get going to and start to think about how you're going to get there. So kind of a broad, not a specific um, idea, but just sort of like a broad approach to this question. Which I think is true. I mean, if we're la- relating it to Dr. Fleischman, yeah, there's a lot to be gained from being stuck in Alaska, I guess.
2: Yeah, like, he doesn't realize how good he had it back in New York. Like I, I put that in as many quotations as I can, like, how good he had it. <laughs> but, yeah, basically, you know, it serves as a reminder that he needs to return back to where he came from.
1: Yeah, I mean, and then there's all sorts of other interpretations like – uh You know, you're you are where you need to be like he wants to return to New York and he's got a future there, perhaps uh, as a medical doctor. That's like when his life will, according to Joel Fleischman, when his life will begin again, you know, like get back on track. But uh, in truth, no, we're here in Sicily, Alaska, and that's the story that we're telling. Now, of Course, we talk about this all the time, but Joel learns a lot of valuable lessons, obviously, from uh, from Sicily.
2: No, he learns no lessons, like, he gets through like how many seasons are there? Is there six There's seasons? six seasons, he goes yeah. through six seasons of living in this town. It's so like, gets on the airport, goes back to New York, like, hey, Joel, how was Alaska? It's like, oh man, it sucked, man. It's just six years of nothing.
1: It's like, nothing happened. Uh, no, I also do like it whenever Joel. In the first season, he's, like, desperately trying to leave Alaska. I think he's starting to settle in. But I think we'll get episodes whenever Joel, like, wants to go back or wants to take a – you know, wants to get out of Sicily. Um, I guess we'll see. We're kind of hitting an interesting point because uh, just – when was this? A couple episodes ago, um, Joel's, quote-unquote, sentence was extended. So he has to stay longer in Alaska. He's finally, I guess, maybe beginning to realize where he is. And he's not going anywhere anytime soon, so – We'll see how much more it develops. Um, But yeah, so thank you so much, Ben, for taking the time to watch the episode and give us your thoughts. And Charles, we're going to return next week with our next episode. It's the 12th episode of season four. It's called Revelations. Got any guesses for what might happen there?
2: Huh. I guess I always think of the book of Revelations whenever I hear that word rather than the definition, like the literal definition of coming to your senses. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to guess it has some correlation with that. And that's where I'm going to leave it at.
1: Yeah. Some, some, some biblical correlation there. I think you're not very far off. I think we're in for sort of a spiritual type episode, but let's save it for next week, Charles. Uh, it's been great podding with you. I will talk to you soon.
2: All right. See you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Ben for being our guest analyst. If you like the write-in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter, and if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.